Uh, would you please open your Bibles to two passages? We're going to be in three passages. Uh, and before I read them, so Matthew 28, Titus 2, Ephesians 4. You can have your fingers in Matthew 28, Titus 2, Ephesians 4. Our time together is not very long, and I hope to make it interactive. Uh, so, Anita, I don't know if you still have that mic, but maybe you can move around. Okay, thank you. Matthew 28, Titus 2, and Ephesians 4. We're really not going to spend much time in Titus 2, but I want that lurking in the background of your minds as we're talking about discipleship, which is my assignment this morning. Matthew 28, verses 18 and 20, familiar passage to us, reads, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And the other text, just to have in the background of our minds, Titus 2, verses 1 through 6. Titus 2, verses 1 through 6. But as for you, this is Paul speaking to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Well, let's pause there. Let's pray together, and we will talk to, about discipleship. Father, it is your good and wise plan to send your glorious son, Jesus, our King and Savior, and friend, and brother who has come to live in our place, die in our place, and rise in our place. And Lord, if the amazingness of your gospel plan was to build a church and fill it with men and women who you call your disciples, and that you have charged us, gifted us, and equipped us so that we would continue to make disciples down through the generations not disciples of ourselves, but disciples of you. So I pray this morning, Lord, that you would help myself and my sisters to think well about what your word says regarding discipleship. Lord, we confess that this topic, on the one hand, is a well-worn path, but on the other hand, has many burdens associated with it, many fears, many confusions, many perplexities, uh, and, and many, many other things that seem to hinder us from engaging in obedience in this area. So I pray that your word this morning would lift burdens and make clear and straight paths of the beautiful responsibility it is to make disciples. 
and help my sisters in that endeavor as they train others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so question up front. So my, my assignment is to talk together about the biblical topic of discipleship. But when you hear the word discipleship, it's likely that many of you have a picture in your mind of, okay, what does it actually look like? And so I'm curious, if you're willing, would you share what comes to mind when you hear the word discipleship? You can raise your hand, Anita will bring you the mic. What comes to mind, what do you picture, what does discipleship look like? Teaching, okay. Like what I'm, like what I'm doing right now. Okay, go ahead. One-on-one time with somebody. Is this on? We're recording this, so I want you to wait for the mic. I want to ask Diane a question, Anita. Okay, so Diane, you said one-on-one with somebody. Where? It doesn't matter. Okay. Where do you typically, like, where would you typically picture it? Honestly, like, either on a walk. Okay. Or, like, maybe in somebody's house, and you sit down and open God's Word and okay. work through some things or a book or something like that. That's good. Okay, so we have teaching. We have one-on-one. When you hear the word discipleship, what comes to mind? What, what picture is there? Martha in the back. I'm thinking uh, sharing life together. Sharing life together. What does that mean? Go clean my house with me. <laughs> yeah, okay. Do Let's go own. grocery shopping together. Let's, Let's go, go to Walmart. Shopping. Let's clean house together. Okay, that's good. A- any, any, other, any other things that come to mind? This Martha, all the Marthas. Counseling. Counseling. What do you mean by that? Helping, helping another person walk through difficulties. Okay, that's excellent. Thank you. Okay, I have another question. So there's, there's these portraits in our mind. So we have teaching, we have one-on-one, we have the doing life together, so the shopping, whatever. Uh, we also have the counseling component of there's a specific issue that requires specific attention, and so we're going to apply the Word of God to that situation. Uh, here's another question. What questions or fears or anxieties, or whatever the right term is, what anxieties or fears tend to secretly plague the topic of discipleship? Anne Haney. Primarily inadequacy and judgment. Okay, w- sister, hold that mic for a second. So, many. <laughs> no, that's great. Two is good. So inadequacy. Yes. I, I, by that you mean uh, I'm not good enough to be a disciple or, or a discipler to speak into this person's life. Right, because we use God's word. Yeah, I don't know the Bible well enough. Something along those lines, or I haven't gone through that situation. What was the second thing that you said? Uh, judgment. Judgment. Yeah. And what do you mean by that? You would feel like you weren't doing the. Uh, a good enough job or that the person was judging you for their problems Excellent. against your own. Yeah, that's great. 
not great that that exists. Those are really good examples. Thank you. What, what else? What are some other secret anxieties that plague thy topic of discipleship? Jennifer. That um, afraid to disciple because you don't know enough. You don't yeah. know all the answers and yeah. enough scriptures to deal with, help yeah. them. Criticism or rejection. And, and that is from, would that be, Marty, from the, the view of you're the one who's doing the discipling? Is that Marty? Yes. Okay, yeah. Sorry. Uh, you're meaning from the one who's being discipled? Yes. Yeah, okay. That's good. Let's go one, one more. feeling of failure or unworthiness is that what you said okay. tanya so so this so pause for a second so this was a great example i mean ev everybody experienced this this is this is not this is true for men in discipleship if this was all guys in the room they would basically be saying the same thing if they could figure out what they were feeling <laughs> so so there's that but a, a lot of these examples were were given from the vantage point of I'm the discipler and I have inadequacies in, in reaching to somebody who is less mature in the faith. Okay, let's, let's reverse that. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of someone who is young in the faith and immature. What, what are some common fears that tend to plague a, a younger person in the faith? Fear of freedom, maybe, you know. Fear freedom. of freedom, okay. Yes, losing freedom. Okay, losing freedom. Liv, were you gonna say something? Yeah. Um, I think fear of being judged for how little you do know. Okay. Um, I think I've seen that with college girls of like, well, I don't want to come because what if I ask a stupid question or yeah. what if this is something everyone else knows and I don't? Yeah, it's good. It's good that you said that, not good that it exists. <laughs> Let's go one or two more. I think uh, how about Gabby? I was just going to say, I usually don't want to interrupt somebody else's schedule or be an inconvenience. Okay. And that's okay. Gabby. Um, I, um, I just feel like as the, the person being uh, younger in the faith, you just feel very uh, vulnerable to open up, you know, completely because mm -hmm. there's a lot mm -hmm. sometimes. That's good. Maybe one more. Mandy, did you have one I see? Yeah. It's, it's kind of what Anita was saying, but um, fear of annoying the other person, especially when you're the one pursuing someone to disciple you, and you're like, I don't want to be that annoying yippy dog, like chasing them down, <laughs> you know? The annoying yippy dog. <laughs> Praise the Lord. It's my, uh, what is it? My yeah. spirit animal. <laughs> Can I ask Beth? So now, so, 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 th so think for a second there what, what we just discovered, right? So this is, this is all true. This is very common. I, I think that from the vantage point of the discipler and then the disciple, both have these feelings of inadequacy. Both think, I don't know enough Bible to help somebody. 
And then the other person is, I don't know enough Bible, I'm not good enough yet, and I'll be asking stupid questions that are embarrassing. And so in both those circumstances, who are we relying on most? Self. And not King Jesus. And his Holy Spirit in us, and his word of God in our laps. And there's that notion that plagues us that if you want to be discipled, so one, there's that burden, and that's a, that's a very real thing, because uh, we're going to talk about in a little bit that don't, uh, don't be afraid to be rejected, because rejection doesn't necessarily mean rejection. If you ask someone to disciple you and they don't have time, don't take that personally, but getting ahead of ourselves. So we need to talk about terms. Uh, I know that we have all manner of ex Christian experience and maturity in the room. So we keep saying the word disciple, 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 but what in the world does that mean? How, how would you define disciple biblically? Diane. I think a follower because Jesus' disciples followed him. That's right. So, so let's spend some time thinking about Jesus and what Jesus did. Jesus had his disciples. We read it all across the pages of the Gospels. The disciples were his followers. But the word also means learner. So it's, it's not just the, the little ducklings following the duck and just imitation, although it involves imitation, but it's also learning. So there is a, there's an imparting of knowledge. There is a teaching component I think a really helpful way to think about discipleship, because we use it so much, rightly so in Christian circles, because it's Bible, but apprentice is a really good way to think about discipleship. Because when, we, when you hear the word apprentice, you, 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 you may envision that person who's coming alongside a master craftsman and learning the trade by spending an enormous amount of time together, following how they... Um, do the woodwork or the needle craft or whatever it is. They're just learning from this person. They're an apprentice. And so they're learning a whole life trade. That's a good way to think about discipleship. But think about Jesus. I'm going to suggest that Jesus is our model for how we disciple. Jesus gathered people around him. They watched him. He taught them. He spent lots of time with them. And they went where he went. And that's what you read on the pages of the Gospels. Now, I don't think discipleship means that we sell all our belongings and become nomads in the wilderness. We live our normal lives that we're living now. But the, what we see is there was an enormous amount of time together. So think of Martha's uh, doing life together comment. That's absolutely true. They would sit by the campfire together. They would talk, uh, things along those lines. But Jesus everywhere and everything that he did was teaching. So he taught biblical truth and he modeled biblical truth, but it was always in the context of a group. So, so for example, to pick on Diane, I thought the same thing. For some reason, my early Christian walk for like the first decade, I presumed that discipleship meant one-on-one -on -one at tourist home. Or, or something along those lines. You go down to Starbucks, you sit down, it was one-on-one -on -one in all contexts. And if it wasn't one-on-one, -on -one, that wasn't really discipleship. I also thought that discipleship 
was a program, a conveyor belt that you could put someone through. Take these five classes. You are now officially discipled. Here's your certificate of discipleship. That's not right. It's partially right, but it misses the relational component. But think about what Jesus did. When Jesus traveled around, he had the multitudes, but we also read in the Gospels that he had the 120, and he had the 70, and he had the 12, the 3, and the 1. So Jesus had concentric circles of people of varying types of relationships that he was involved in, and the closer that circle got to Jesus, you had more teaching, and you had more um, life together, so to speak, in those concentric circles. So Jesus sent out the 70, but, but who got the lion's share of his time? Shout it out. The 12, yeah. So we talk about the 12, the 3, and the 1, the 3 being Peter, James, and John, and then the 1 being Peter. But when you read the Gospels, Peter didn't get very much one-on-one -on -one time. Jesus primarily spent his discipleship efforts with a small group. And so one of the first burdens and corrections I want to remove from our backs is the burden to think that discipleship is exclusively one-on-one, -on -one, where you are the omnicompetent, all-knowing, perfected saint who is able to impart all of your glorious wisdom to your disciple. That is not the case. Jesus himself did everything, almost everything, in a group. And, and we'll come back to that in a few moments. So when we think of disciple, a disciple is a follower. They are a learner. Jesus gives us models how he discipled, and it was always in a small group of 12, which is actually a pretty big group to try to disciple. And, and we'll circle back to that. So without a doubt, Jesus serves as a model of how we're to think about and go about discipleship. So for Jesus, a small, consistent group was his most effective strategy to spread the gospel. So think about that. For, for God in the flesh, his most effective strategy was to take 12 guys who were disciples, also apostles, and use them primarily to spread his gospel. And that's the same way that we approach discipleship. So Jesus made apprentices, he made disciples. So now the question is, who is to disciple and who's to be discipled? How would you answer those two questions? Who is to disciple and who's to be discipled? Every believer. Yes, that's, it's, it's the obvious. I, when I read Matthew 28, Jesus' command to go make disciples was not exclusively to the apostles. If it had been, Christianity would have stopped and died with that first generation of apostles. But we have now these 2,000 years of, of the gospel growing around the globe because we are always disciples of Jesus, but we are also always supposed to be putting efforts into participating in discipleship efforts. So, we are to make disciples. Now, we're trying to uh, break apart and remove burdens. So let, let's pause and think about this. The question is, where and how do we make disciples? Jesus expects 
his church to make, mature, and multiply disciples. That's the command in Matthew 28. As you go, and it's plural, as you're all going, you make disciples, and when the disciples believe the gospel, they're baptized in Matthew 28, and then they're assembled together in local bands of believers called churches. We make disciples. And so discipleship is also a corporate endeavor. So, so here's, here's a big idea for you. It takes a whole church filled with a whole Bible to make a whole disciple. It takes the whole church filled with the whole Bible to make a whole disciple. Contrasted with the one-on-one, just me and Jesus at the coffee shop imparting everything to someone else. It takes the whole church filled with the whole Bible and the Holy Spirit to make a whole disciple. But I want to ask this question to us. Why do you think it's, uh, why do you think discipleship in small groups instead of one-on-one is the ideal pattern that Jesus has set for us? What might be some reasons that it's God's wisdom to have a small group of, of believers? Jennifer? Well, some accountability that if I'm saying something that's wrong, then somebody else can say, oh, wait a minute, you know, you said that wrong or something. Mm-hmm. So that's help, good. help in the disciple. Patty? Where are you? Where's Patty? She's right there. <laughs> I agree. I think also there's a degree of co-discipleship where you, you share the encouragement, you share the teaching, you share everything together so it lightens the load. That's excellent. That's absolutely true, absolutely true. What else? Carrie? That you have personal knowledge of the, the people in the group. They have personal knowledge of you. It, there's, it's just, um, you know, there's, there's that yeah. fellowship that's there. That's great. A- and any, other, any other biblical ideas of why it's God's wisdom to use a small group? I was just going back to the person that said co-discipling, then that's going to help with those fears that you, with, that were raised earlier. Uh-huh. That's right. Wait. No, Diane. She needs a microphone again. How, how, how would that alleviate or help with those fears we talked about earlier? Because then I don't have to know everything. Amen. Because I have somebody else there to, who may know the things I don't. That's right. That's right. Uh, Martha. Martha and then Jane. And then that's it. This Martha? Martha. It's easier to build trust and share trust in a smaller group than it is in a large group. Why do you think that's so? Fewer people know my secrets. (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's good. And Jane. This kind of goes along with that co-disciple idea, but there's not like the head disciple, that there's, um, yeah, there's the sharing of equals within, I mean, we could be in different places in our walk with the Lord, but there's not like the expert that's giving out all the advice. Um, You're sharing the load as, yeah, 
with your life experiences, with your knowledge level, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so, so if you pause for a second and think about God's wisdom is that nearly everything, or I would even argue everything in the Christian life is done in a group, if you think about it. What do I mean? So the leadership of a church is not solely invested in a single guy. It's not the Pope model. The wisdom of Scripture is that there is a plurality of elders, for example, because no one man has all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the gifting, and all of those things necessary to shepherd a flock. It takes a, it takes a plurality of men to both guard and grow each other to better serve the flock. When we read in Acts, when they were on their missionary endeavors, all missionary endeavors were always group endeavors. So you have Paul and Barnabas traveling together and uh, with their team. So we know that Luke was traveling with them because he wrote the, during their times and more. So we see God's wisdom is that he invests authority in groups, that there's wisdom and that the group together is dependent upon uh, Christ, his spirit and his word. So when it comes to discipleship then, it's very similar. So I do think that in a discipleship structure, you can have someone who would have more of that lead type role, but it's not that top-down, heavy-handed, obey my discipleship. It's coming alongside and walking together with somebody and imparting knowledge and correcting as necessary and rebuking as necessary and crying as necessary and listening as necessary and all of those things that, that go into what we see with Paul, where, where Paul could refer to himself as a man full of tears in his discipleship of the church, but also a man who rebuked the church and more. You can see that in, in discipleship relationships. So I, I agree. I think that is part of God's wisdom. Now, that might just be three of you. It, it, it might be four of you. It could be a small group. But I think that the, when you have a group, God's spirit and his word is present in everybody. And I know that those of you who are more mature in the faith and you've experienced discipleship, you can all attest to being blessed by the more immature person in the faith by um, observations they make in the text of Scripture, uh, wisdom that they uh, give by applying Scripture to certain circumstances in life and more. So we talk about where and how we disciple. We do it in a group and we see God's wisdom. What I hope that that does is that lifts, again, that burden that discipleship is you going, finding a person, and one-on-one imparting all that you are to them. There are places and times for that, but I'm arguing from the Bible that the main way that discipleship takes place is always in a group. So when we talk about where and how we disciple, our, our, um, turn to Ephesians 4, please. Ephesians 4, and we'll look at verses 11 to 16. And we're coming to this text hopefully to make a point and lift more burdens and provide more clarity on how discipleship functions in a local church. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Here we're hearing Christ's 
plan and purpose for local bodies of believers. So Ephesians 4, verse 11, verses 10 and previous have talked about how Jesus has resurrected and ascended into heaven. And in the ascension, then think Acts 2, he pours out his spirit, he pours out gifts. So beginning in Ephesians 4, 11, scripture reads, And Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers, or shepherds and teachers. Well, why did Jesus give these uh, word preaching and teaching offices? Verse 12, to equip the saints, and that's not Catholic saints, that is Christians. The word means holy ones. To equip Christians, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So right there, if you pause, you have the job description of how life in the church works. God gifts uh, pastors, in this case, and evangelists, teachers, and our role primarily, what does it mean to shepherd the church? It means to equip the church for the work of ministry. So the church, the Christians, all of us do the work of ministry. Verse 13 until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Right, that, that last phrase, measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that's, that's your door jam where you're drawing how tall your kids are and you're seeing how kids are growing up to a certain height. So we're saying that we're supposed to, like babies, grow and mature to the full stature and height of Christ. Verse 14 why are, why are we, the saints, supposed to do the work of ministry? Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So the church, equipped with the word of God, speaks the word of God to each other, and that is... Uh, like our, our white blood cells that are going out against the viruses of false teaching and the viruses of immaturity to protect us from those so that we would grow up in Christ. Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we have this command, we're disciples, go make disciples. Discipleship involves teaching. Here's a teaching passage. I think one of the, the connections between discipleship and what we see taking place here is that the local church and all of her ministries is the realm of discipleship. So we tend to think of discipleship taking place outside of the church, at the coffee shop, in the home, on the walk. It can include that, but there's this amnesia when it comes to discipleship where we think that the local church and all of her ministries aren't part of the discipleship process. I'm arguing from scripture, it is the discipleship process. So what do I mean? So just again, going through that real briefly, pastors equip the church 
for the work of ministry. One of the primary ways that I disciple is through preaching and teaching the word of God. The work of ministry is that the Christians are built up into the image of Christ. That's verse 13. We guard each other. We speak the word to each other against immaturity and false doctrine. That's verse 14. And then we speak the truth in love. That's not this abstract idea of just saying true things with a loving attitude. Speaking the truth in love is speaking the Bible in love to other people, to particular concrete situations in their life. And when we, when the Bible reverberates among us, like a chorus singing, as it were, speaking the word of God to each other, we are building each other up so that we, are, we look like Jesus. In other words, discipleship is church building. When the church is speaking the truth and love to each other, we disciple each other and it builds the local church. That's the argument. That's Paul's logic of Ephesians chapter 4. So what's the point? And here's where the other burden gets lifted, right? We're trying to destroy the notion of the omnicompetent, all-knowing, one-on-one outside the church. What does this actually look like to have discipleship where the church and her ministries set the agenda for discipleship? Let me give you a for example. You are a more mature saint, and you desire to disciple. So here's what you do. In this case, you grab a girlfriend who's also a mature saint, and then both of you go to a younger gal in the faith and ask if she would like to be discipled. And she says no. So then you say okay. And you, you don't be worried about being rejected, but you made an effort, you grabbed a girlfriend, you went to go do that. But let's say she says yes. You can say to this young gal something along these lines. Do you know, do you have another friend or two or three who would also like to uh, pursue Christ together? And maybe she says yes. You suddenly have a group of five. You and your fellow mature saint and then this younger gal and two of her friends. And here is an example of what you can do. Here's, here's an example of what discipleship could look like. You could say to her, okay, for the next 12 weeks, here's what we're going to do. Let's sit together first service. Let's sit together first service, listen to the word preached. Then let's all grab a cup of coffee together. You can go walk to tourist home, get the coffee, or go into the fireside room. Come back, and then you're going to sit together through one of the adult Sunday school classes, like the one that Jeff Newman and Scott Porter are teaching right now on how to grow. There's a reason we chose to teach that, those guys chose to teach that class. And so you're going to sit together in that class, and then what you do is you say, let's find a time for 90 minutes to two hours that's going to recur for the next 12 weeks, and let's get together outside the church at one of our homes. Maybe we can have dinner together for the sole purpose of applying the sermon to each other's lives and applying what we heard in the adult Sunday school class together. That would be an example of discipleship. You're not writing curriculum. You're not having to figure out what to teach. You're using the teaching ministries of the church. You're sitting under it together, and then you take what was taught, and you discuss it. 
pass it back and forth with each other. That would be one way to go about discipleship. And you say it's 12 weeks because it's going to correspond with the 12, week, 12 weeks of Jeff and Scott's class. And then that's it. There's, there's no need for it to go on for eternity. It can stop right then. You can do eight weeks. You can do 10 weeks. Maybe what you can do is you're in a home fellowship. And you go and you grab a young gal. Same thing. You have two or three friends. Invite them to your home fellowship if there's space. Let them be there together. You're praying with each other, praying for each other. You're reading the Bible out loud together. And you can still also meet outside of that to follow up with them. Maybe there's a marriage problem. Maybe their kids are going crazy. They're going crazy. They need help parenting. So maybe you find a gospel-saturated book on marriage and parenting or something along those lines. And it's okay to read that book in a small group. The idea is to help each other know and follow Jesus, to help each other take your next steps in Christ. But the idea is that the burden is lifted, that the reason we do all these teaching ministries in the church, same thing with Wednesday nights, come to Wednesday night, go to both of Dave's classes, or come to one of my classes, and go talk about Texan canon, or whatever it is you want to do. There's all, we do these things to equip the church, and these different teaching venues are there for you to utilize so that you don't have to come up with it, a curriculum. Or another idea is you simply meet and say, I've been really wanting to memorize the first three chapters of Ephesians. Do you want to take the next school year together to just hold each other accountable, to memorize the first three chapters of Ephesians, text each other, call each other, check in, things along those lines? It should, what I'm trying to communicate is there needs to be a way of having the pressure relieved so when a relationship is time-bound, it's okay for it to end. It's okay for it to be rejected and say, no, I, I don't have time right now. That's okay. But it's, it's using the ministries of the church in tandem as the tools of your, relationship, of your discipleship relationship. That is a way, I think, most productively that you can disciple others. Does that, does that make sense? Questions or comments on that idea of having church-centric using the ministries of the church? Any comments or questions on that before we close? Yeah, Nessa. Wait, Nessa, you have to have a mic. I do. Oh, I feel so important. Now, yeah, everyone hears your voice. Well, everybody. <laughs> When I was a new Christian and um, I realized I was, didn't know, I was starting to go into, back into my old ways, the way I was talking to my husband. We were newlyweds and I'm, I was completely lost. And I searched out somebody, I heard about the word mentor, and I searched out somebody and um, the first two people I asked at the church I was going to at the time said no. And then... How, uh, did, that, how did that feel? Oh, awful. <laughs> yeah, horrible. And, um, and then... Uh, this woman that was selling, she actually came here, selling, um, her and her husband were selling th their logs, selling us our logs for our home. And I thought, she's the only other Christian person I know. So I attacked her at a party she was holding. I said, uh, I really, you know, would you be my mentor, please? And she's like doing her husband's 50th birthday party. And she looks at me and she goes, I'll pray about it. I'm like, wow, I never heard that before. So uh, anyway, sure enough, a few days later, she got back to me, and she, 
we started meeting regularly, and, and it was a good one-on-one, -on -one, but during that time, she brought me into the women's Bible study here at FCF. We still did one-on-one, -on -one, um, and we went through this book about marriage, how to be a godly wife. Ooh, did that, did that shake me up a little? <laughs> but it was really, really good. And so, yes, I agree that there's sometimes there's time where you have to just get in one-on-one -on -one with somebody. But she didn't just do that for me. She brought me in here. Amen. That's good. Any other comments, observations, ideas, questions, practical questions, things along those lines? Can I comment? Yes, Anita. I think this, the context of a lot of discipleship happens in hospitality. So if you are showing hospitality, if you're walking alongside each other on this journey toward Christ, then you automatically have opportunities both for discipleship and evangelism. And I've told some of the younger girls in here, like, if there's someone you want to disciple you, start going to whatever they go to. And start doing the same ministry they do. Because your discipleships and your disciplers in church are the ones you serve alongside. That's right. Just some examples from, from our life. When, when Rachel and I, newly married, no kids, and we desired to have kids. And there was a, um, we got connected with these believers and the pastor of this church had seven kids, and we had no kids. And seeing their kids uh, well-behaved and, and just recognizing, wow, we don't have kids, we don't know how to do this, and here's a big family, we deliberately put ourselves, like kind of Anita said, we started going to their home Bible study so that we could just simply watch and learn from them about how they parented, how they, how they raised the kids, how they interacted, things along those lines. Something that one of our convictions here that we do is we, we have people in our home on Sundays. We have a home fellowship, but our home fellowship goes from about 4 to 8 or 9 p.m. We read the Bible out loud together. We pray together, but then we want people to stay in our house to eat together for fellowship and hospitality and uh, just have those intentional conversations for a very long time to just hang out and, and build relationships so that it's both teaching and discussion of scripture and at the same time relationships and friendships being built. That's one of the ways that we're going about discipleship here. Let me just, we, we gotta close. Um, couple, fi couple final ideas. Number one, if you desire to be discipled, consider what Anita just said. You can look at, a, at a, another woman and listen to her pray, and don't be afraid to reach up, so to speak, and, and say, hey, I, I, I see how you and your husband interact, and it's really attractive because my husband and I don't interact like that. Can you help? Can you talk to me about how you, how you are a wife and how you do marriage together? You can ask that question. Same thing with kids, or same thing with you hear how very mature godly prayers, and you want to learn to pray that way. Could you teach me how to pray? Things along those lines. Don't be afraid to ask, ask up. But the, here's the most important burden to remove, and this is the final thing I want to say. With discipleship, if you're being discipled or you're a discipler, you need to understand this. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. Jesus will give you the wisdom. Jesus will give you the insight. 
Jesus will give you what you need because ultimately the discipleship is his discipleship. Jesus disciples through us. And we tend to cut him off from discipleship purposes, but recognize that when, when the group gets together and you open the word and you're praying and you're talking about the Bible and applying it to each other's lives, Christ is present there and he is accomplishing his purposes of sanctification in everyone's lives. So it depends ultimately on Jesus, not on you. That's the best burden to remove because when you step out in faith to minister to other people, you can trust that Jesus has put his stamp of approval on that and in doing so, he will equip you and train you as you help others and vice versa. Well, let me close this in prayer and we'll be done. Lord, thank you for the gift of discipleship. Thank you that discipleship depends upon you. And I pray for my sisters that you would encourage, strengthen, embolden, and free them from any burdens that they might have that are not in keeping with the wisdom of your word and how we help each other know and follow Jesus. Would you make that a characteristic of the women of FCF, the men of FCF, and that not only would we see the saints built up more into the image of Christ, but we would also see the lost saved and built up in Christ as well. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.